Hey guys, my name's Kieran, and you're listening to the Infinite Rabbit Hole. Keep up the good work, guys. Over the years, movies, video games, books, and TV shows have portrayed various levels of simulations of life, from the futuristic holodeck of Star Trek to the visually and physically immersive virtual reality world known as the Oasis from the 2018 major motion picture Ready Player One. The fantasy of spending time in a virtual world has captured the imagination of many. But today, we are not discussing simply visiting a simulated world like in those pieces of entertainment, but rather we will be continuing a previous conversation and visiting the possibility that we may unknowingly live in a world that is fabricated for our own existence. In 1999, the movie The Matrix introduced the masses to the idea that we are all pawns in an artificial world tethered to our fake reality by ports located in our actual bodies in the real world. This path of the unknown is filled with questions that will not only leave you uncomfortable, but will have you questioning your literal place in the universe. Do we live in the quote-unquote real world? What would be the purpose of our real world? What would be our purpose? Is this world less like that of the Matrix and more like that of the Sims? Are we living our own artificial lives, or are we simply an avatar of somebody else's actions and desires? Hey. Sit back, hang tight, and get ready to question everything. And welcome back to Infinite Rabbit Hole. sounded familiar it is <laughs> that is very familiar uh because i i basically took the introduction of the first one and tweaked it to our likings for today we'll dive back into that here in a second but first welcome back to infinite rabbit hole everybody i'm your host jeremy today we have a special special episode for you i'm so excited i am twitching in my seat right now but real quick let's get everybody else in there we'll make it quick because you don't want to hear them you want to hear our guests and i, I guarantee you that Jake, how are you doing? I'm doing well, man. I'm, okay, I'm stoked good. for Kid, this how topic. are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for well. asking. Let's go. <laughs> All right. We good to go? We good to go? Can we go? go? All right. Let's go. Real, real quick, uh, for those that, that heard that introduction or were like, hey, that's familiar. Yes, that is familiar because when we first touched on the simulation theory, we talked to Grayson, one of our biggest fans uh, of the show, on a topic that was chosen by him. And basically what I did was I tweaked that a little bit. Because all of the research that I did for that episode, I actually took from our guest book for tonight's episode. So you'll see a lot of parallels, but we have the man here ready to talk to us, break it down like I couldn't. 
Dude, I could see the smoke coming out of your ears. When I know. I'm so excited. This. It was crazy. I know. I know. And I'm so excited. But let's go ahead and move on to the real reason why everyone is here tonight. On today's episode of the Infinite Rabbit Hole, we'll be diving back down into the path of our discussion on the simulation theory. For those of you that are new to hanging out with us on the Paranormal Network, on March 18th of this year, we released our first episode on what we will be conducting as a series of episodes on the conversation that we all live within a simulated world. Today, we continue that conversation with a very special guest. Not only is he the author of the book I used for my primary research on the topic for the previous episode, but he is also a very or he is also very successful in other areas of his life as well. Entrepreneur, investor, futurist, video game industry pioneer, indie film producer, and author of two books on, on the physics and technicalities of the simulation hypothesis, titled Simulation Hypothesis and the Simulated Multiverse. Here we go. These are these books. Run and grab them. This guy is amazing. Sporting a bachelor's in computer science from MIT, a master's in management from Stanford's Graduate School of Business, and currently working towards his PhD researching metaverse and virtual worlds from ASU, I am extremely proud and excited to welcome and introduce Rizwan Verk to the Infinite Rabbit Hole. Riz, welcome. Thanks for having me on. It's always fun to go down the rabbit hole. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like I'm living in the rabbit hole. So, <laughs> I'm going to catch my breath here for a second. I tried to get that get that out as quick as I can. Uh, thanks, Riz. I'm really excited about this. Yep, definitely great to be here. So let's start off. Well, first of all, let's uh, kid. Uh, Jake, do you guys have any questions before I just take over this entire episode from you guys? No, I'm just okay. ready to hear someone who, who knows this topic talk about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm ready for uh, for you to melt my brain here, Riz. Right. <laughs> so let's let's start from the beginning, Riz. Uh, for all the listeners of the Infinite Rabbit Hole and the watchers of the Paranormal Network, uh, who who is Riz Wanvert, and uh, how did you get into? Uh, the, the love and the interest of the simulation hypothesis. Sure. Well, you know, as you mentioned uh, in, in my intro, I, I've been involved in Silicon Valley as an entrepreneur and an investor for the past decade, particularly in the video game industry. Uh, and so it was partly this interest, uh, you know, from my day job at the time, which was initially creating video games and then later helping other entrepreneurs who wanted to create, you know, immersive worlds and also video game related technology. Uh, companies like Discord, you may have heard of, uh, mm -hmm. you know, was one of the initial investors there. They started off as a game company. The game didn't do so well. And they, they said, well, we made this chat thing that's kind of cool. <laughs> and so then they released that. And that's what we all know Discord for today. And then that, you know, seems to be a, a common theme where video game technology is really driving innovation uh, across the computer industry, really since, you know, back in the, 1970s and 80s and, and 90s, as well as today with computer graphics, et cetera. Uh, and, and so, you know, it was during this career that uh, back in 2016, after I'd sold my last game company, I, I was invited to play virtual reality ping pong at a startup in uh, 
the Bay Area in Marin County, just across the Bay from San Francisco. And so instead of admiring the view, which was great because you could see the bay and you could see the skyline of San Francisco, you know, I got in this dark room and put on this uh, virtual reality headset and I started to play ping pong. And what happened was, you know, the, the responses were so real that for a moment I forgot that I was actually in virtual reality. I mean, despite having kind of this big thing on my right. head, uh, because, you know, we're, we're not at the, the West world levels of small glasses, like, like this size glasses where we could do that. Uh, but despite that, I, I, I actually forgot that I was in virtual reality and thought I was playing a real game of table tennis. So at the end of the game, I tried to put the paddle down on the table and then I tried to lean against the table, just like I might normally do after playing ping pong, which I used to play a lot, you know, as a kid, I haven't played much lately. Uh, and I almost fell over <laughs> and the controller fell to the floor and I had to catch myself. And I said, whoa, you know, we're getting to the point um, where we could build a virtual reality eventually. I mean, we're not there yet, but we're getting to the point where you know, the, the virtual world would be indistinguishable from the physical world. And so that was a bit of the spark that got me thinking along this topic, uh, you know, sort of going back to my day job of investing in, in video game companies, I started to think of what are the stages of technology that would get us from here to that theoretical point, which I call the simulation point. Uh, and at that point, we could basically build a matrix, right? And then we could plug you in just like Neo and Morpheus you know, we're plugged in with the brain computer interfaces uh, in the back of the head. Uh, and, uh, you know, once we reach that point, then I wondered, well, you know, the, could we already be <laughs> inside a simulation? And, you know, turns out there, there was a, a professor at Oxford named Nick Bostrom who had put out a paper in 2003 called, Are You Living in a Computer Simulation? And, and basically what he said, I mean, you can break it down into a lot of details, but basically what he said was, if any technological civilization ever gets to this theoretical point, then they're not just going to create one simulation, they're going to create lots of simulations, billions of them. And each of those billions of simulations might have trillions of simulated beings. And this was the logic that led Elon Musk in that same year when I was playing the VR ping pong game 2016 to say, that the chance that we are not in a simulation, that the chance that we are in base reality is one in billions, which means that the chances that we are in a simulation is billions to one, right? Um, and, and so, you know, that, that really got me down the rabbit hole, so to speak. Uh, and, and that led me to, to uh, you know, write the book, the first book. And then I thought I was done with simulation theory for a while, and we can get into that story later, how I got back into it to end up writing a second book about a simulated multiverse. Well, that's fantastic. That's great stuff. Hmm. I too have also put on a pair of VR head, a uh, pair of VR headset, VR headsets, a headset, headset. 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 Yeah. We'll go with that headset. Goggles or headset? Yeah, yeah. Goggles, a pair of headset. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, potatoes, tomatoes, right? Um. <laughs> you know, I just learned this in doing my research for my PhD that the the first time virtual reality was really depicted in science fiction. M make a guess when you think what year that was that oh, there was a man. a pretty solid description of virtual reality in science fiction. Anyone want to guess? Nineteen sixty. Good guess. Anyone else? Yeah, I, I would say sixties or seventies myself as well. Yeah, that seems like uh, a good era for that. I actually think it's. You know what? Just for the hell of it, fifties. Go ahead. Fifties. <laughs> all, all good guesses, and you know, uh, Simulacron Three 
which was the novel that the movie The 13th Floor was based on, was in the 1960s. But turns out there's a story from 1935 <laughs> called Pygmalion Spectacles. Wow. And in it, this professor puts on these glasses, and the glasses also had like some liquid in there so that you could actually feel what was going on. And so, you know, we think of Ready Player One, right? But I mean, this yeah. is 1930. Computers weren't even around <laughs> back then. And yet they had a pretty solid depiction wow. of virtual reality that's even more advanced than what we have today. That is. I'm sorry to interrupt crazy. you there, but that was just a no, reason that's, that, 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 is, that is funny. Anyways, uh, Jake, before gonna... we get into simulation theory, did you want to maybe bring up another topic of a belief from one of our other co hosts? Real quick. I think the reason why Jeff didn't show up for this episode is not because five voices would be too much. Um, I think it's because he doesn't believe that space is real. And debating that with someone who actually knows something um, would probably be way more difficult than arguing that with someone like me who or you or Kenzar who's never been to space and never studied space so i think there's a reason why jeff isn't here with us right now but yeah He's we have scared. a uh, we have a guy that's um, more along the conspiracy side of things and one of his conspiracies is that um he i don't think that he really has anything against the idea that we are in fact in a simulation no or I that think he's very know, very for the simulation theory but it, but with things that most of us know to exist, like space, he is a, a firm believer that it is not what we are told that it is, and that um, it could very well be like the Truman Show. <laughs> that it's just this big dome of twinkly lights, and maybe the uh, the main uh, was it the uh, the headquarters is in the moon or something. <laughs> like it's it's pretty wild. So I think that there's a reason why he didn't show up today. I think he was scared, but. <laughs> so you have uh who was the actor in the truman show playing the producer was it ed ed harris uh you know sitting up there in the control yeah. room on the moon yeah <laughs> well you know that that ties closely to simulation theory i mean that's more of a physical version of simulation theory. right uh and simulation theory is more about a virtual reality mm -hmm. uh, and you know, I guess it depends on your definition of real, right? And if you think of that iconic scene from The Matrix where uh, Morpheus, who's named after the Greek god of dreams, takes Neo out of The Matrix and he puts him in this other little simulation where he's sitting, you know, with this kind of leather back chair and it's mm -hmm. white and then they show all these guns and, and Neo's like, whoa, is this real? Right? And then yeah. Morpheus' response was, well, depends on how you define real. If reality is a series of electrochemical signals going to your brain, then yes, this is real, right? It's as real as anything else might be. And so I guess it gets back to your, your definition of, you know, what does it mean to be real, I, I guess, would be the, the bigger philosophical question that comes into play. Well, there you go. Jeff is right then, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> we are, in fact, in the Truman Show. Well, yeah. <laughs> Depending I, on your definition of real. I guess if if Jeff believes that that space was taught to him to be an ocean of black liquid, then to him space would be fake because it's not, right? Hmm. Right. So it depends on your definition, right? That that you I guess. Uh, whether you buy into the I, I mean, the truth is that physicists don't know what space time is, right? And we don't really know what matter is. So you know, physicists keep talking about. 
this thing called matter. But then every time they look for it, you know, they keep going smaller and smaller, right? They say, well, must be somewhere in this table. <laughs> okay, there's a bunch of molecules that are moving around. They're moving around faster in the table than they are in the air, but there's still a lot of space in between them. And then you open up the molecules and you look at the atoms and it's like 99% empty, right? Yeah. And then they say, well, there's these subatomic particles in the, in, in the nucleus. And then they look at those and they can't really find those. And so, the, you know, there was a, a physicist named John Wheeler who was at Princeton uh, with Einstein and many others. And he was kind of one of the, the last giants of 20th century physics. And, you know, he said that he looked for, you know, he, when he started his career, they thought that that everything consisted of solid particles of stuff so that there was something called matter. It was just these solid objects of atoms. And then later he realized it's some kind of field. And then by the end of his career, he, he got to the point where he said, you know what, there, there, there are no such thing as these particles. There's just properties of the particles. Basically, they're bits of information. And so he came up with this famous phrase, it from bit, which says that if you think something is an it, like, you know, this bottle of water, it's really just a bunch of bits of information. When you get right down to it, like you keep opening up the Russian nested mm -hmm. dolls and you look down at the bottom and, and that's all it is. is this, and, and turns out when you're inside a video game, so if your avatar is inside World of Warcraft or inside Fortnite, once it's rendered, like you may have seen video games, like when you're when you're rendering it, you can like go through the walls and stuff. Sure, yeah, These aren't solid. But then once they get rendered solid, you'll bump up against it. It feels pretty solid from your avatar's point of view. Mm. Um, and and so you know that was part of the reason why uh, moving beyond the statistical argument that that Bostrom gave, the more I looked into physics, the more I realized uh, that you know, there wasn't something really substantial, at least that we've been able to find so far. And then I looked into the world's religions and my explorations of consciousness and meditation and lucid dreaming, which are all areas that I've explored kind of on the side, uh, you know, kind of leading this double life while I was uh, an entrepreneur and businessman during the day and exploring this stuff at night. Uh, you know, it just seemed that it made more sense to me uh, if things were virtual than if they were actually physical. I agree. <laughs> Uh-oh, Jake. You look like you're thinking or trying to poop. Definitely thinking. Um, <laughs> um, so with the idea, the simulation theory or a hypothesis, would that be more along the lines of like, because there's been some pretty horrific sections of history that we've had, right? Where if it was, in fact, a simulation, that would be – someone would have a lot of explaining to do. Um, you know, some – like I uh, – would this more likely be like as if – so I did uh, world history growing up, right, in, in school, right, high school and all that stuff. Um would it be more along the lines of like all that stuff actually didn't happen and us today we just think it happened because we've been programmed to think that it happened or um, that it did happen but the simulation has just grown over time and worked out all of its kinks and stuff and some people have had really horrible experiences and stuff along the way inside of their simulation or is it more along the lines of like I'm real and the rest of you guys are NPCs? Right. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, because this there's is so where, many different theories, right? Yeah, and this is where you get into the different flavors of simulation theory, 
And, and I think, you know, you've kind of pinpointed that. And, and I like to say this is actually one of the most important issues uh, related to simulation theory, to this new field called simulation theory, which is what I call the NPC versus RPG flavors of simulation theory. And so in the NPC version, everyone is just an AI running in code on the computer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're just kind of running kind of like, uh, again, I referenced this movie, the 13th floor earlier. Uh, I don't know if any of you have seen it. It's, it came out in 1999. So I don't think I'm giving anything away. <laughs> um, nope, no, spoilers. Uh, <laughs> no, <I'm just> kidding. <laughs> um, but you know, everyone in they're in the nineties and they go back to the 1940s. Uh, inside the simulation and in the simulation, mm-hmm. everybody there from the forties in LA thinks they're real. Right. And so the, in a sense, they're NPCs uh, within our non-player characters, which is the term from, right. from video games. And in the RPG version, uh, you, you actually are an avatar inside the game uh, and you're in a multiplayer game where other people also are avatars of real players. And that's, you know, more akin to something like a second life or a Fortnite or, or one of these many mm-hmm. uh, online games. And so you have kind of the Sims versus, you know, Second Life or World of Warcraft uh, as these two extremes. Now, what you'll notice in video games, uh, those two are not mutually exclusive. <laughs> I mean, you can have NPCs and you can have uh, PCs or player characters mm-hmm. as well. Um, and most of the academics, when they talk about simulation theory, they're talking about the NPC version, right? Mm-hmm. So they're saying it's just happening in a computer and that's it. You have no existence because in academia, they tend to be more materialists, right? Uh, and, and so, you know, they tend to say there's nothing, no consciousness, nothing outside of what's being written, what, what's there in the physical world, which I like to say is what's being rendered at the current moment in time. Uh, the RPG version hits closer to, I think, where a lot of the uh, many philosophers and a lot of the world's religions, particularly Eastern religions, um, you know, come down where they talk about, uh, but even the Western religions like Christianity and Islam and Judaism, uh, that, you know, you are a soul, you come in to the body, you download into that body, you're kind of stuck there for a period of time. And then a, everything that happens gets kept track of by some universal computer. And then you get uploaded again at the end of that, or you basically take off the virtual reality helmet, if you will, at the end of life. And then in some of the religions, you go back and you play again and again and again into the, into the game. And so uh, uh, I, know, I know this is kind of a longer way of getting to your point. No, no, go for it. It's perfect. Uh, You're killing perfect. it. <laughs> yeah, but this, this kind of gets to, I, I think, what is the core issue and you know, the same, same issue that physicists have been <laughs> struggling with since the beginning of physics, which you know Max Planck thought that consciousness was fundamental and matter was derivative. And most physicists today think matter is fundamental and you just put the right neurons in place and you'll have consciousness, right? So it's an emergent property of the consciousness. Uh, But then getting back to, well, what does this mean for history, right? Well, it could go either way. I mean, you could have uh, a history that hasn't happened, uh, but you think it has, because that's, if you think of a video game, if you run like a simulation, you can run the Sims or you can run a simulation of, say, the pandemic or any other type of, of the weather, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a whole field of kind of running simulations separate from what we're talking about, which is we are inside a simulation. This right. is, a you know, like the, the population of fruit flies. We're going to run a computer simulation and we're going to figure it out. Uh, and in, in that whole world of computation, there's, um, there's, there's a guy named Stephen Wolfram 
who was a physicist, um, dropped out of Oxford and then taught at Caltech and, and created the Mathematica software, which a lot of like uh, engineers use. Uh, and you know, he came up with a phrase called computational irreducibility. And what he said was, if you want to see what's going to happen at step one million in, in, in any process, in certain processes, what he calls complex processes, you have to go to step 999,999. And to see what's going to happen there, you have to go to 998. And to see what's going to happen there, you have to go to 997. Right. Basically, you have to run the whole damn simulation in order to figure out what's going to happen. And it's... It, if you do that, you have to run it multiple times, right? And uh, you know this is where we get into a strange idea, which is what led me to write my second book, which is about the multiverse. Uh, you know, I was interviewing uh, the wife of science fiction writer Philip K. Dick, and uh, his wife Tessa Tessa Dick. You know, as part of my research for simulation theory, because um, you know, uh, in 1977, uh, Philip K. Dick at a science fiction conference in Metz, France, had a famous statement which has been quoted a lot and you can find it on YouTube. There's even a, a song from the, the group Max Dover that starts with a, you know, kind of a, a digitized version of his voice sounding very robotic. Mm -hmm. and, and what he said was, we are living in a computer programmed reality. And the only clue we have to it is when some variable is changed, some alteration occurs in our reality. And that's the famous part of the quote. It turns out there's more to the quote. There's a whole speech and so, you know, I went back and uh, I, I, I thought of, I, I interviewed Tessa just because I thought it'd be fun to get her take on whether, you know, Phil, Philip thought we were in a simulation. And she told me a lot more than that. She said, well, he actually thought not only were we in a computer program reality, but that there were multiple timelines mm -hmm. in this reality. And that, you know, Philip uh, wrote a book called The Man in the High Castle, right, which became an Amazon series recently, uh, pretty, pretty big hit uh, series. And in that, in that book, which was his only Hugo award-winning uh, book. Uh, so it was his kind of his best known book while he was alive. Of course, Blade Runner is better known now, but um, uh, in that book, uh, Japan and Germany won world war two. And basically they carved up America between them. Right. So the Germans ruled kind of the East and the, and the Japanese ruled to the West. It was a pretty brutal reality. Uh, and if you watch that that show, you'll see you know what what they put in there. And she said he came to believe that that actually happened, right? That that timeline mm -hmm. was a real timeline. He didn't just make that up because he kept having these visions of America as a police state. Uh, and eventually, he said he had what the Greeks call an anamnesis, which means a loss of forgetfulness where basically he recovered all of these memories. And so, you know, he came to believe that they went down that timeline and for whatever reason, they didn't like the outcome, right? Uh, the, they, meaning the simulators, and that they changed the variables, right? This is what his quote is about. You change the variables and it would feel like you're rerunning the same events. You're saying the same words. You're hearing the same words, but things are happening differently. And that now we were on a different timeline. We were on a timeline where the allies won the war. Um, and, you know, she said he actually thought this happened with these strange beings even more than once. Uh, like, and it's happening all the time, which is leading to a lot of these little changes or big changes. And, you know, she said he got the idea when he went into the bathroom to, like, turn on the light. And this is, you know, back in the 60s or where they had those chain lights. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he tried to pull the chain light and, and it wasn't the chain wasn't there. There was a light switch. And he, he was like, well, I, I've done this a hundred times. 
you know, this way, and now it's this way. Um, and so he came up with this idea that maybe there's a team of people that are fiddling with little variables in reality, and then you rerun the simulation. But then it got even weirder because he said that they ended up uh, uh, preventing the assassination of JFK in Dallas in one run of the simulation. But then he got, uh, sorry, in, yeah, in Dallas. And then, but then he got assassinated in Orlando, in another city. Mm-hmm. Uh, or he got assassinated somewhere else, or he didn't get assassinated, and somehow we ended up in a nuclear war. And so it was almost as if, you know, he said each of these timelines is like a, a suit in a closet. They're next to each other, and that there are individuals uh, that are outside the simulation that are like fiddling with these variables. And he claimed to, you know, now we're getting into something that sounds, you know, sounds very strange, but perhaps not for your for your podcast. Well, oh, that's, that's the butterfly effect is pretty much and what you're talking men, about, where it's just like something changes and it projects in the future, right? Well, that's right. The, the butterfly effect and the Mandela effect. Right. Uh, both. Uh, so, Mandela is uh, a fun one. Yeah. And so that was you know, what got me thinking, uh, because I had, I had written this book about simulation theory and it just, the, the thought wouldn't leave my mind that, well, if you can run a simulation once, you can run it more than once. And in fact, you would change these variables. And I was actually sitting down with a friend of mine from MIT who had just taken a job at Google. And we were just, uh, I was living in Mountain View, which is where the Googleplex is located. And we were just a couple of miles from that in downtown having coffee. And he said, oh, have you heard of the Mandela effect? And I said, yeah, you know, I've heard of it, but I hadn't thought much about it. And he said, well, you know, one explanation that makes sense for the Mandela effect is that it's a simulation and that you basically change variables and you rerun it. And, you know, he said it was a pretty deep rabbit hole. So he was like, you may want to be careful. And so between that conversation with this friend of mine from MIT, who typically, you know, that group of people is not talking about things like the Mandela effect and mm-hmm. UFOs and aliens. And, uh, and my conversation with Tessa about Philip K. Dick, I went back and reread his whole speech and realized yeah, that's what he was talking about. And he even said, all we would have to do is find a group of people that had memories of a different timeline, a different alternate present, right? Uh, to show this because, you know, he, he had these memories, but not that many other people did. And it wasn't really possible till the internet came around mm-hmm. where you could and the Mandela effect was coined by this blogger, Fiona Broom, in, mm-hmm. in 2010, uh, when she was at uh, Dragon Con, which is one of the, you know, the, the Comic-Con-like conferences. And uh, some of the, the people had remembered a Star Trek episode. Uh, and if you know Star Trek fans, I don't know if any of you are Star Trek fans, but, you know, they know their stuff, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> like, like, you know, Trekkies or Trekkers, depending on what you want to call them. They they know about this episode and what happened and what line was where, and they kept the, the there were fans that were insisting that there was this one episode, and the cast of the original series Star Trek was like, no, we never filmed that episode. What are you talking about? Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so you know, and then she she also found that she had memories of Mandela dying in prison, as did a bunch of other people, and that was what led to to her coining this term and talking about it. And so I started to investigate different different Mandela effects, including. You know, ones that I, I thought I, there are a lot of small ones, right? There's the spelling of Jif peanut butter versus Jiffy. There's a Kit Kat with a dash versus not having the dash. Yeah. So you they're all know, I am your father versus no, I am your father. Yeah, hey, so there's a whole Star Wars nerd. Oh, there you go. Yeah, around. <laughs> remember Luke saying, you know, Darth Vader saying, Luke, I am your father. Yeah. <laughs> as just, do I, as do many others. Right? Just to throw this out there, I will die on this hill that Fruit of the Loom had a cornucopia. I agree. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I, that I, was, I agree. That was another one. Now, Blew my mind. So, so you know, most, most scientists dismiss the Mandela effect. Oh, it's just faulty memory. A group of people are having faulty memory. And, yeah. you know, I said, well, what if we took it more seriously than that? <laughs> right. What if it actually happened that way? And it turns out it's not just one Mandela effect. Each of these, if you think of it, it's like a grid, right? You yeah. could say Fruit of Loom is this versus that. And then somebody who remembers Fruit of Loom this way might remember Kit Kat this way. Uh, but you get in this, this basic graph of possibilities, which is exactly what the multiverse theory is all about. But, but then I started to look for uh, things that were more significant, right? So that's what I call proximity. If you have proximity to something, or it's more significant in your life, you're going to be less likely to just have faulty memory about it than somebody else. So the Bernstein bears versus the Bernstein bears was one of those mm-hmm. where, you know, people remember, people who are Jewish remember saying, why are these bears Jewish? Right. And they remember right. having that conversation. Right. And so there's a proximity there. Or another one that I liked was um, uh, that, I, you know, I don't remember, but the Reverend Billy Graham, right. There are evangelicals who insist that you know, they, they, their, their parents get these magazines in the mail, that he died you know, several years before he actually died with his funeral. And they have memories of it. And again, if you're an evangelical Christian who follows this particular uh, uh, you know, pastor or priest or, or whatever the terminology is, then you're, it's going to be closer and more significant to you. And if you're a Star Trek fan who religiously knows, or a Star Wars nerd mm-hmm. who religiously knows, like I would know if Mark Hamill died, but I wouldn't know if right? you know, Graham died. Right? <laughs> <laughs> could you, and, and could you so, imagine? Oh, man. Yeah. So I kept finding these more significant versions of mm-hmm. the Mandela effect to the point of the Bible, you know, the Bible changes that people talk about. And and again, people know their scripture. I mean, that's an area where, you know, people don't want to screw around. And then the whole line about the lion and the lamb uh, in Isaiah, which many of us remember, turns out if you look at the King's James Bible, it's not there. It's, it's you know, the, the wolf will lie with the lamb, right? It's not the lion and the lamb. And, and there are even like people have made, you know, artwork that you put on your wall that has, you know, the lion and the lamb quote from mm-hmm. Isaiah, you know, up there. And so you have physical objects. And at first I thought, well, maybe it's just a mistranslation. Maybe they're just different translations of the King James Bible. And they're like, no, 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 I've had this Bible since I was a kid. <laughs> and it's physically changed in the Bible. And so this took me down a whole nother rabbit hole, you know, in looking into the Mandela effect. Uh, but turns out, I, I wondered if there were other religions because you know, again, people know their scripture, right? The people mm-hmm. that are serious about it, um, in the same way that we might know Star Wars lines. And so I looked at Islam and the Quran, and you know, one strange thing was there was a there was an Imam who's a Sufi, which is kind of like the mystical side of Islam, who says uh, that there's a reason why uh, the Islamic uh, priests, they're called hafizes, memorize the whole Quran. And the Quran's a big book. I mean, it's not like a little book, but they memorize it word for word. Mm-hmm. I remember as a kid thinking, why the hell are they memorizing this whole thing? I mean, we got books, we got computers, we got other things, you know. And turns out there was a strange reason. And they said, because in the Islamic tradition, there are beings, uh, which are called jinns, mm-hmm. or genies, yeah. as we call them, from yeah. the West, 
which is, you know, a singular jinn. Uh, but the jinn don't live in linear time the same way that we do. They're allowed to go back and change variables and change things. So variables is my term. That's not necessarily what they used yeah, right. you know, thousands of years ago. But they're allowed to go back and change physical objects and change things. But they're not allowed to change our memories, right? They're, that's forbidden to them for whatever reason. And so, so it got into this weird place where I was investigating computer science things and I ended up, you know, looking into like, you know, beings who are, and, and Philip K. Dick. Okay. So back to Philip K. Dick, uh, you know, in his speech, he said, there's a programmer and counter programmer and it's like they're playing chess. Now the obvious implication is, is it God or Satan or is it somebody else? But, uh, but that they're like changing stuff to see what happens. And then they're going back and changing other things to see what happens. And they're like playing a game of chess with each other. Uh, and, and so that led me down, you know, this, this path of, well, is it possible? And it turns out if, if it's possible that we can be inside a simulation, it's certainly possible that we can be in one that's run multiple times because that's why you run a simulation, right? You yeah. run it in order to see what will happen. The only way to see what will happen in a computationally irreducible process that I mentioned earlier is to run the damn thing up to a certain point. And then you might say, okay, we're going to cut off that one. We're going to run it again. Uh, and then, you know, if you introduce free will, now it's even more random and chaotic because now you've got all kinds of stuff branching where people might decide to do things differently. So if you add the RPG element in, uh, it actually, you know, there's this whole idea of the multiverse, the Mandela effect and the simulation are kind of all tied together in a way. Mm -hmm. So, um, and anyway, I know I went on kind of a, a long a diversion there, but. Well, you know. I, I hear you. The answer, the simplified answer, which deserved a really good explanation is yes. If you're looking at the multiverse <laughs> thing, the original question I asked you, is it, is it that history didn't exist or that history did exist and it's just been, you know, getting there or like whatever it is. The the simplified answer to that question is yes. But yes, exactly. It, it wouldn't have made sense without a very thorough answer, which I appreciate. Oh, that was <laughs> thank you much. <laughs> that was awesome. Thank you. Uh, mind mind blown. <laughs> Officially, yeah. So here goes a few. You know what? Let's just jump into the big question. Okay. What is the best physical piece of evidence? or educational piece of evidence, quantum, physics, whatever you want to use, what is the best evidence you have right now for the possibility that we are living in a simulated world? Right. Well, you know, I break it into three different areas, uh, one of which I mentioned originally, which is this idea that if we can create a simulation, it's very possible that someone has already created one, because if we can do it, so I put the simulation point as maybe a hundred years from now, 200 years max. Okay. That might seem like a long time to us, but it's really not that long in, in the, uh, the overall right. age of the earth or the age of the universe. So imagine the civilization that was a thousand years ahead of us. How good would their computers be? How about a million years ahead of us? Right. Okay. I mean, that's just inconceivable to think what they could have built at that point. And, and if the, if the physical universe is anything like the universe that we see, then you know those those uh, ages are just a blink of an eye. Uh, the second area is the religious areas, 
Uh, and we can talk more about that in a minute. But then the third area is the kind of the, the, the physical world and, and, and the scientific area. Uh, and I think that's what you're kind of asking about here. And so I, I will be, say, first of all, this is still a, a speculative area, right? Mm -hmm. This is not an area where if you go to a physicist and says, okay, has it been proven we're in a simulation? <laughs> the answer will be no, that, that they don't know. In fact, they're not even sure it can be, right? And so one of the, one of the, the criticisms of simulation theory is it's non-falsifiable, which is you can't prove you're not in a simulation, right? right. Um, now, my answer to that, though, is just because you can't prove something is not true doesn't mean you can't find some evidence that it is true. Right? Uh, and so, for example, you know, uh, a couple hundred years ago in Europe, uh, there were reports of rocks falling from the sky. And, you know, the scientists in Paris said, that's ridiculous. You know, there's no way there's going to be rocks could fall from the sky. These peasants out in the countryside, they're going crazy, kind of like, you know, modern science has been doing UFO buffs, right? Yeah. And, and people who have seen UFO sightings. Um, and, you know, they said that can't happen because there are no rocks in the sky, right? So how can they be falling? Uh, now, the problem was they had the wrong model, right, of the universe. And so because of that, they couldn't explain the, these weird things. Um, and, and so eventually there was a, a meteor shower in a town in, in rural France where there were like thousands of witnesses, thousands of individual pieces of, of this meteorite fell. Uh, and then they were able to compare it to uh, other meteorites that had been claimed to be from, from outer space. And they found that it was very similar. Uh, and so they were able to finally get some actual evidence. And then they changed their mind and they had to come up with a new theory. This is what, what are called scientific anomalies. right? And they had to come up with a, a new theory to accommodate that anomaly. And so, you know, right now within quantum physics, there's a lot of anomalies. I mean, there's, a, there's almost too many anomalies, right? To the point where our, our, a, a simple materialist, you know, model of the world where the past goes to the future in one single uh, physical universe doesn't make a lot of sense. And, and for me, the best evidence is, is quantum indeterminacy, you know, which is best explained with Schrodinger's cat, right? Yes. <laughs> We've all heard of Schrodinger's cat. And yes. so Erwin Schrodinger, one of the, the fathers of uh, quantum physics, came up with this idea because he just thought what quantum physics was telling us was ridiculous. So he came up with this idea to say, this is how ridiculous the whole thing sounds. He says, if there's a cat in a box and within an hour, the cat is going to be, has a 50% chance of being dead because there's some poison that could mm -hmm. be released um, and a 50% chance of still, still being alive, the cat... Common sense tells us the cat is one or the other. It's either alive or it's dead, right? Can't be both. I mean, it's in the box. We don't know, but it's got to be one or the other. And when we open up the box, we'll find out which one it was. And the problem is that quantum mechanics keeps telling us again and again that the cat is both alive and dead, that it's in a state of what's called superposition, mm -hmm. which means both of those positions are there. Or if you think of a qubit, a quantum computing bit, yeah, a regular bit has a value of one or zero. A qubit has a value of both one and zero at the same time. And it's not until someone observes the cat or measures the cat, right? Um, and so there's some debate about that, that what, what happens is they say it's a probability wave across all of these positions that gets collapsed down to a single solid reality, right? And for me, that is one of the biggest mysteries and, and to me is one of the, the, the best pieces of evidence that... Uh, what we have is something that gets rendered as we experience it. So uh, the rule in quantum physics is only render that which is observed, right? Um, if you buy that specific interpretation. And turns out that's how we make video games. So, you know, when I was a kid, 
way back, going way back to the 80s when we used to have video games like Pac-Man and mm -hmm. Space Invaders. I remember uh, those. You remember those? <laughs> great. <laughs> They're great, yeah. We could not render something like Fortnite, uh, especially not on a device this small, like a phone. <laughs> we couldn't even do it on our computers. Right. Uh, because we were like, there's just too, there, there's too many pixels to keep track of. And so how did we go from there to here? Now you might say, well, the computers got faster. Yes, they did, but it was actually more important than that. We came up with algorithms to optimize how we rendered 3D models, right? So we only rendered, like if you and I are in the same room, our avatars in the same room, we only render what my avatar can see and you only render what your avatar can see. You don't render the whole world on your computer. That would still be way too many pixels to render. And so the rule of thumb in 3D computer games is render only that which can be observed, right? Which is exactly the rule according to quantum physics. Uh, and so for me, you know, that's one of the biggest indications uh, that we may be uh, in some kind of a, a world that gets rendered based on information, which was the other piece of evidence that I talked about earlier, which is based on bits of information, right? But it gets even weirder than that. Okay, so your question earlier was, uh, if this tragedy happened, did it really happen or not? Right. And I said that, and, and you, and, and you summarize my, my long answer with the short answer is yes. Well, it turns <laughs> out within, within quantum mechanics, which was the, the, the double slit experiment is where they got all this. I explained it with Schrodinger's cat. Young's turns experiment, out, right? What's that? Is it, that's Young's experiment? Yeah, the original double slit experiment. Oh, it's both yes and no at the same time. Yeah, it's both yes and no at the same time. <laughs> but it turns out there's a John Wheeler, who I mentioned earlier, came up with a different version of that. He called it the delayed cosmic choice experiment. And, and so the delayed cosmic choice experiment is best explained with the cosmic delayed choice <laughs> experiment because it's easier to visualize. And so imagine there's light coming from a quasar that's a billion light years away from us. That's a long time, right? Yeah. So the light would have had to have left that, you know, back before there were humans on Earth, if you buy the standard timelines, right? Uh, and then suppose in between, between a billion light years and the Earth, uh, maybe a million light years away, there's a, a very large gravitational object like a black hole mm -hmm. uh, or galaxy. And so the light has to go either to the left or to the right of this black hole. And turns out we can catch the light in different telescopes to figure out if it went left or right. This is where it's like the delay. It's like the double slit experiment. It can go either way. Mm -hmm. But now the, the decision of whether to go to the left or to the right would have had to have been made when? Think about that. It's a million light years away, the black hole. Yeah. And whether to go to the left. It would have had to have been made a million, million years, years ago. ago. Yeah. Right? So we're talking like dinosaur time, right? And what the the quantum uh, the cosmic delay choice experiment and the versions they've run of that now when Wheeler proposed it he couldn't really do it but we can send it to satellites light to satellites and we can we can approximate it it's shown that that decision is not made until today <laughs> so both of those possibilities exist both of those histories exist in a state of superposition and this is where it gets really weird right because now it's not just the cat is alive or dead. But like, you know, the cat came from grandma's house or the cat was, you know, uh, uh, given to us by our neighbors, right? right? Both of those histories exist until the time when they get observed 
or like, as I like to say, it gets rendered. And so the way to think about it is there's this long grid of possibilities. And we are basically going through this grid and based upon where we are. And, uh, you know, it's, it's all virtual. And so for me, the fact that the delayed choice experiment shows us that tells us time is not what we think it is. And the fact that the Schrodinger's cat, the original double split experiment, shows us that things exist in a state of superposition and they only get rendered when they're observed is probably the best indication that the universe is optimizing somehow. <laughs> it's doing exactly what we do. In, 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 and a lot of computer science is all about optimization. I mean, going back to yeah. the Atari days, they only had like, I don't know, 2K of memory, literally. And they had to write like the whole Space Invaders code and make it all work, you know, in that. And, and that's why, if, if, okay, if any of you have ever played Space Invaders, uh, what you'll notice is that, that you start off with all these aliens and they're going really slow. Yeah. And then as you shoot the aliens and there's, they start going faster and faster. Now right. that seems like it's a, a, a difficulty mechanic. Like normally you would do that. Well, it turns out it's because it's all space. the memory that the computer was used <laughs> made the aliens go slow. And once you kill all the aliens, the other aliens off, it does, you know, there's a lot more memory available. And now it suddenly can render. Think so faster. It actually, that was why it That's happened. That's awesome, though. actually. That so great. That is fantastic. That so would, but would the, what if it was an area that you could see, say like it's an area in the woods, right? And you could see at one point, say ten years ago, you went and visited this area. No one did except for you. You observed it in a certain way. You left, so it's not observed anymore. No one's around there. So let's say it's in stasis, and then you go back, and then you can see it ten years later, and you can see that the change has happened over the last ten years, whether some trees have died or, you know, plants have grown in areas where they weren't and all sorts of stuff. Like how would that account for that? Or is the computing power just so astronomically large that basically it's like video games that are coming out now where it has its own weather patterns and stuff and it can account for all that stuff, even though it's not an observable area. Yeah. And that's where, because it doesn't have to render it until you, you look at it, it can store that as information. So it actually doesn't have to render the clouds for 10 years. Mm -hmm. It can kind of just run the bits and figure out where it would end up after 10 years. And so it, it's, it, if you've ever run a process on a computer that's a graphics process, there used to be like in video games too, there used to be like a super user mode. So we, what we talk about the metaverse today, it was the term was coined in a science fiction novel called Snow Crash which came mm -hmm. out in 1992. So this is pre-Ready Player One. Um, and at that time, the way it would work is you had a 3D world, you put on your goggles, and you can be inside this world looking around. That used a lot of computing power. Or you could go into super user mode, in which case there was no graphics being rendered. You could just like type code <laughs> into the computer, and you could just process the code. And then you would re-render it at the end. And so you know th that's sort of what we call... Uh, a lazy evaluation in computer science where you don't evaluate it until you need to, right? The very, you, you use the computing power when you need to, but because it hasn't been rendered all that time, it's more of an informational simulation. Like it's much easier to run a simulation of the fruit flies because it's just saying, okay, what's the number of fruit flies every year? Like there's mm -hmm. no graphics involved in running a simulation of the fruit fly population, but running a Sim City simulation or in Tokyo, they, I, I was on this uh, program with uh, uh, 
uh, with uh, William Shatner, uh, what's it called? The Unexplained, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, they did a, a, an episode on apocalypses and they wanted me to talk a little bit about simulation. And we were talking about how in Tokyo, they ran like the fastest supercomputer that was, that was available at the time. And they wanted to see what would happen in an earthquake. And so they wanted to see what would happen with all of the individuals in the city and how they would evacuate. And you're talking millions, mm -hmm. millions of people. And so yeah, they had to have like a lot of computing power. And I mean, today it's, I don't think it's I don't think it's the the, the most powerful supercomputer anymore, but it was at the time. And that's what they needed because they were trying to graphically show it all and show each decision being made independently. That said, I I, I do think that it's a computer system that's uh, so advanced compared to what we think of today that we probably wouldn't even call it a computer. <laughs> it's, it's, mm -hmm. that's what quantum computers is about. And I think, I know we're running, we're running short on time, so I don't want to get too far in quantum computers, but in quantum computers, you have this idea of qubits, which let's say you have four bits. Each one can have a very value of zero or one. So that means there's 16 possibilities, yeah. two to the fourth. Uh, and if you had, you know, a thousand bits, it's two to a thousand. And so these computers can solve it, quickly what are called exponential problems, problems that grow exponentially. And they do it by just trying out all the possibilities. But like a normal computer would take literally thousands of years to mm -hmm. solve these exponential problems, like like breaking encryption. Or, or like there's the old story of uh, the king in India and the chess player and the wise man. And the king loved to play chess. And the wise man said, well, I don't want to play. And he goes, well, I'll give you anything you want if you play chess with me. And the wise man said, okay, you give me one grain of rice for the first uh, square in the chessboard. Give me two grains of rice for the second one, four for the next one, eight for the next one. And the king was like, yeah, sure. Why not? I mean, yeah. a few grains of rice, no big deal. Well, it turns out two to the 64 was so much rice that you couldn't fit it all over India right? by the yeah. time you got to the 64th square. But quantum computers can solve those problems. Uh, and that we're just learning to build those now. So that's why I think that's more like a more likely solution for how, you know, we would do that. So we're on the verge of some really cool stuff. Will you yeah, come exactly. back and blow our minds <laughs> to explain more about how we're, we're all doomed. <laughs> well, 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 you know, I don't necessarily think we're all doomed in that, you know, if you think of playing a video game for me personally, you know, uh, thinking of this world as a video game gives you this idea of quests and what happens if you don't you you know you don't make your quest the first time you do it again <laughs> you keep going you don't just give up right and so uh and some people play with a real high difficulty and some people play with a low difficulty they want an easy game and so when you know weird things happen to us in life thinking of it as a video game with a higher difficulty is not is a way to kind of stay on top of things and maybe mm -hmm. not doom but really say well maybe we signed up for that quest even though we don't like it and it's super difficult and you know it's a health problem or a financial problem or some other problem so anyway that's just my perspective on the things. navy jake yeah yeah this is a, <laughs> this is a bad quest uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right um all right so time is up but i have to ask you a question completely unrelated to the simulation theory before you go Okay, we do it with all the guests. Do you believe in Bigfoot? Do I believe in Bigfoot? Um, is, is Bigfoot real? Riz, come on. I, I haven't seen it, but I know people who say they have. So Really? So, yeah, I, mean, I was on Coast to Coast with Connie Willis, and you know, half the episode she kept saying, you got to come with me to Colorado. <laughs> like, she yeah, was, she will. She will. She kept saying, you got to take me out. I got to take you out to these woods, and then you'll see Bigfoot is real. So, 
you know, it's very possible that there are, uh, you know, I, I'm a big believer that we, we don't know a lot. Right? We think we know yeah. a lot, but we don't really know a lot. And so, you know, uh, my perspective is if people have seen it, if enough people see something, just like with near death experiences, it's very likely there's something there. Yeah. It's the um, multiverse. Literally, like there's a universe out there where it's all big feet and they're talking about, do you believe in people? It's like, well, yeah. I know people that have, I know big feet that have seen people, you know. I, I was in Chicago. I swear yeah. I've seen a whole train of them. Now, um, we, the, the running joke is that we mentioned Bigfoot on every episode. It's, it's, uh, sorry, had to do it. Oh, no worries. Riz, thank you so much. Um, before we go, can you go ahead and let everybody listening to the Infinite Rabbit Hole podcast or uh, watching in on the Paranormal Network, you know, let them know where where can they find Rizwan Verk and follow him and and uh, get to know you a little bit more. I know you got a podcast yourself, um, and where yeah, can absolutely. they get your books? Sure. So, you know, the books you can get pretty much anywhere. Amazon, of course. Uh, I always encourage people to go to local bookstores. Uh, and, you know, even if they don't have it, they can they can order it. Uh, and if you're in Boston or uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, you can get signed copies at either East West Books in Mountain View or uh, oh. Porter Square Books or Seven Stars in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, and my website is zenentrepreneur.com, uh, which was based on the title of my first book, which was called Zen Entrepreneurship. Uh, and you can follow me on Twitter uh, at Riz Stanford, just like the university. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, Jake, kid, do you guys have anything for Riz before we go? No, just as long as he promises to come back and keep blowing our minds. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as soon as we're, we close up shop here, I got to pick up my brain off the floor. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I know that I didn't say a whole lot this episode, but you, there was so much information. My brain instantly went to mush and I was just so interested in what you were saying. I couldn't articulate my own thoughts. So <laughs> I've just been sitting here absorbing everything and I don't even know if my brain is solid anymore. I think it's just a puddle. <laughs> <laughs> Which is pure what we liquid want now. Yes. Just pure liquid now. <laughs> I guess that Thank you awesome. so much for coming on. on. I'll have to come back then, I think. Yes, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me on. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on. I can't I can't say it enough. Thank you so much for, for blowing our minds today, Riz. Uh, so all the travelers of the Infinite Rabbit Hole, uh, you've heard it straight from his mouth where you could follow him. Uh, he blew our minds today. He's, blew, he's blown my mind uh, when I read his first book. I'm about a third of the way through his second right now. Uh, the man is is absolutely brilliant. Uh, I highly, highly, highly recommend his work. I've listened to a couple episodes of his podcast. He has some really good guests on there, some really good mind-blowing stuff. Check it out. Uh, follow Riz on, on all social media platforms. Check out his website. Uh, the man does amazing stuff. I, I took some notes here. Uh, I'm going to check out the 13th floor, and I'm also going to watch that, that episode of, of The Unexplained. Uh, that's some really, really cool stuff. Uh, we got everything in. We, we even talked about the man in the high castle. That is, you know, uh, F Philip K. Dick is fantastic. I mean, if you guys get a chance to read a book, the man in the high castle is just awesome. Uh, I've watched maybe like the first five episodes of, of the show. I'm more of a book reader, um, but the show, the show is pretty good, too. I eventually want to get back to it. But uh, 
With that being said, travelers, thank you for joining us on this episode of the Infinite Rabbit Hole. Next week, we will be diving into kids' third topic. Kid, would you like to share what your topic is? Sure. We're going to talk about... Loch Ness Monster. Ooh. Now, we've been doing the show for over two years now, and Loch Ness Monster is one of the big hitters when it comes to cryptozoology. Kid's going to blow our mind. I know she, she'll do a great job. And then after that, uh, I believe we I'm have something, something with Jake, but that is a mystery even to myself. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that is it. That has been another episode of the Infinite Rabbit Hole Podcast. To all of those listening on your favorite podcast platforms or watching in on the Paranormal Network. Thank you once again. Let us know what you thought of Riz's uh, time here in the Infinite Rabbit Hole. Let us know. Uh, give us some questions because I know for a fact I'm going to be bothering him all the time about coming back on the show because that was an absolute blast. Ask us the questions that we can pass on to, to Riz on the next episode, and uh, I'm sure he's going to blow our minds just like he did today. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you in the next path of the Infinite Rabbit Hole. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Riz, you got to say bye. Bye, everyone.